Welcome to the Cuban Family Roots Podcast, a monthly podcast dedicated to discussing Cuban history and ancestral roots. I'm your host, Aileen Vega, podcasting from Woodbridge, New Jersey. As a genealogy enthusiast, I created the Cuban Family Roots Podcast to help others in their genealogical journey. I conduct interviews with Cuban researchers and geneticists, authors, and those with knowledge and expertise in Cuban history and genealogical research. I'm committed to conducting interviews that will point to genealogical information and resources to lead family historians in the right path to finding their family roots. From 1492, when Columbus claimed the island for Spaniards to present-day Cuban, our history has been rich and traumatic. Now our family history is slowly vanishing due to archival despair. Cubans inside and outside the island yearn to capture, learn our past, our origins, and our ancestral roots. Knowledge of our history is the key to keeping our Cuban family roots alive. I hope you enjoy listening to each episode as much as I enjoy producing them. The Cuban Family Roots Podcast can be heard on Spotify, Radio Public, Google Podcasts, and many other platforms. You can support us by simply listening and engaging. Welcome to the Cuban Family Roots Podcast. This is episode 8, The Jewish in Cuba. I'm your host, Aileen Vega, podcasting from Woodbridge, New Jersey. We're in September 2021. Before we begin, I want to say thank you to all our new listeners from Greece, Brazil, and Finland. And I also want to recognize Sylvia Gorinsky for all the information she shared to help me produce this podcast. I want to start out by saying that this month, we celebrate two Jewish holidays, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah marks the beginning of the Jewish year. On the eve of the holiday, members of the immediate family gather together to celebrate the beginning of the year with a meal. Following that evening, there are two days of the holiday when people do not perform any labor. Yom Kippur, in fact, it is more of a holy day than a festival because it is the days when the Jews are commanded to torture their souls. The main command is fasting. So from the eve of Yom Kippur, until three stars come out the next night. In the first segment, we'll provide a summary of the first Jewish settlement to Cuba from colonial times to Jews immigrating to Cuba from the declining of the Ottoman Empire to the departure of Jews from Cuba after the Cuban Revolution of 1959. In the second segment, our guest, Marcos Kerbo, a distinguished international banker and university professor, consultant, and community leader, tells us about why and how his Jewish parents and grandparents ended up immigrating to Cuba. Marco was born in Cuba and raised in La Habana's Guanabacoa neighborhood. Throughout the interview, he tells us how he lived his life as a Cuban Jew. When Castro took possession of Cuba in 1959, Marcos immigrated to the United States via Operation Pedro Pan. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please stay tuned and we'll be right back. Jewish Settlement in Cuba The first Jewish inhabitants were known as Maranos. In 1508, the Bishop of Cuba wrote to Spain declaring that every ship docking in Havana was filled with Hebrews and new Christians. These were he Jews recently converted to Christianity. 
In 1502, Inquisition proceedings began against the Moranos in Cuba. The secret Jews of Cuba arranged for trade between the 13 colonies and the Jews of Jamaica, Barbados, and other Caribbean islands. This enabled the colonies to sell goods and buy military and civilian supplies. The Spanish Constitution of 1869 removed all restrictions on the settlement of Jews in Latin America. And at that time, over 500 Spanish Jews engaged in commerce in Cuba, and five to six Jewish families were amongst the wealthiest in Cuba. Jews were amongst the founders of the commercial cane sugar fields and the first refineries. In 1862 through 1895, many American Jews joined Cubans in their fight for independence. The first Jewish cemetery in Cuba was established by the United States Army for the American Jewish soldiers who died during the Spanish-American War in 1898. In 1906, the cemetery was sold to the United Hebrew Congregation, primarily by American Jews. Most of the members of this congregation, which was later named Temple Beth Israel, were Americans who fought in Cuba or came from Key West and other parts of Southern Florida after the end of the war. Between 1902, many Sephardi Jews began to come to Cuba. Amongst them, young Turks who had participated in the earlier revolt against the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. Other came from Mexico, North Africa, and the Mediterranean. They spoke Spanish and had olive complexion and blended well with the rest of the population. Anti-Semitism was non-existent in Cuba, which was mainly because Cubans remember the part some Jews played in the fight for independence. In 1920, Ashkenazis be began to come to Cuba. They were considered German nationals. In fact, they opened up businesses such as dry cleaner, groceries, textile, which bore names such as Bazaar Aleman, Berlin, or Hamburg. After they settled, they built their own synagogue. There was little socializing between the Sephardic and the Ashkenazi groups, but they maintained friendly relations as well as some intermarriage between individuals of both groups. One of the factors contributing to the failure to achieve unity in the Ashkenazi rank was difference of origins. The earlier wave of immigrants came mainly from Russia and Poland. The immigrants of the 1930s and the post-World War II period came from Austria and Germany. The most notable exceptions to the divisiveness of Cuban Jews was Evans during the period of virulent anti-Semitism between 1938 and 1940, which coincide with the worst outrages against the Jews in the Third Reich. We'll be right back. Cuban anti-Semitism. Cuban's anti-Semitism was fostered by Nazis, Camisa Dorada, Falangists, Spanish merchants, and a few clerics, and the Catholic-owned newspapers Diario de la Marina, Alesta, and El Dia. 
apparently with funds provided by the German embassy in Havana. Responsibility for the tragic incident of the SS St. Louis, which sailed from Hamburg, the passengers were in possession of valid Cuban visas, which had been issued at the direction of the Minister of Migration General Manuel Benitez, against a payment of three to five hundred dollars per visa by Cuban Jews wishing to save themselves from Hillarism. The Cuban merchants reveal the details of the transaction and President Laredo Brew, for reasons only known to himself, voided the visas while the ship was on the high seas and refused the ship permission to land in Havana. Appeals to the United States to use its good offices to bring about a reversal of this decision brought, unfortunately, no action at all. The Migration of Jewish from Cuba In the summer of 1960, the Jews began a great migration from Cuba. Since Fidel Castro had assumed power in January 1959, following an armed revolution against Batista, the Jews looked upon Castro's communism as a danger to their way of life and to their property. It was the fear of expropriation, not anti-Semitism, that was the primary motive for their departure. Some also feared that Castro might stifle a Jewish way of life in order to achieve his communal society. Cuban Jews in South Florida South Florida includes the Greater Miami area, also known as Dade County, Key West, and Tampa on the west coast of Florida. It was not possible to know the exact number of Cuban Jews that are residing in this area today. While the Cuban Jews have formed two indigenous organizations, not all Cuban Jews were members of them. Many chose to integrate into the American Jewish community. Among these were some Orthodox, many who had socialized with American Jews who potentially lived in Cuba, and former members of the Reformed Temple Beth Israel in Havana. A large number of Cuban Jews had friends and relatives in Florida and had invested money in the Miami area for many years before the 1960s. Some had spoken mainly English in their homes in Cuba. The statistics of the National Council of Jewish Women and United HIAS Services, 1961, uh, were not representative of the total number of Cuban Jews who migrated to the United States. Many had come earlier and many came via Venezuela, Colombia, Spain, Israel, Puerto Rico, and other places. So making the definite identification very difficult. Areas of settlement, the HIAS figures of Cuban Jews registered under the Cuban refugee program was approximately 4,500. Another 2,500 Cubans probably came to Miami from other countries and even from other cities within the United States. HIAS resettled over 3,000 from the southern Florida area in almost 300 cities in 31 states in Puerto Rico and Costa Rica. Patronato, also Temple Beth Shalom, Havana, 
which was built during the mid-1950s and is considered the main synagogue in Havana. Emilio Capablanca was responsible for the mid-century modern design, including the arch and the front door depicting the ancient 12 tribes of Israel. It remains in use today as a, as a synagogue. And the third is the Orthodox Synagogue at Adash, Israel, also in Havana and also still in use today. Um, during the 1950, its rabbi included Rabbi Dal Rosenwig, a Holocaust survivor who later became a founding rabbi for Miami Beach's Cuban Hebrew Congregation. Today is my pleasure to introduce you to Marcos Kerbel. I will be interviewing a distinguished international banker, a CPA, CFP, university professor, consultant, and community leader. Marco was born in Cuba and came to the United States alone in his early teens, part of Operation Pedro Pan, and lived in a foster home in Los Angeles, California. He was reunited with his parents and brother a year later. The family resettled in Atlanta, Georgia, and then moved to Miami. While in Atlanta, Marcos finished high school, then he earned his bachelor's degree in accounting and an MBA in international business from Georgia State University. They have a son, Dennis, who's an assistant county attorney in Miami, Florida. Dennis and his wife, Rina, originally from Sao Paulo, Brazil, is a financial consultant and have three children. It is my pleasure once again to introduce Marcos Kerbel. to you for the invitation oh my pleasure so i have i have a couple of questions for you can you tell us where your parents came from why they wound up going to cuba okay uh the story starts with an uncle of mine who around 1924 uh left what was then poland because right. when they were born uh my grandfather and and his uncle also Uh, it was white Russia. Mm -hmm. They left for Cuba. Uh, it was Poland because it was after World War One. Right. Today is Belarus. They were from an area which is south of Minsk uh, called Baranovich. And um, first my uncle uh, arrived with his wife and a small child. Then my grandfather followed uh, with his wife, who happened to have been my grandfather's uh, sister. I, and I think the original intentions, like most of these uh, immigrants, was to come to the United States. Remember, around 1924, uh, the United States changed its immigration policy and did not allow, uh, uh, then you can come over. Uh, however, that policy also changed. However, mm -hmm. uh, once uh, the immigrants arrived in Cuba, they were very well received and they enjoyed it very much. And They didn't want to leave. Right. And now my grandfather worked from with my oldest aunt. The two of them went to Cuba in 1926. And they worked until about 1933, seven years to be able to gather enough money or save enough money to pay for the transportation of my grandmother and my mother, who was the next uh, daughter, and then three and four more children. So uh, they were able to come in um, May of 1933, uh, just before Cuba had a change in August with the Machadato regime, and mm -hmm. um, all five of them uh, were able to, to arrive and remain in Cuba until they left uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in, the in 1962. To the United States. That's correct. 
But you were born in Havana and raised in, in the neighborhood of Guanabacoa, right? That's correct. How was it growing up in Cuba for you? Interesting. Now we have, with everybody's talking about diversity and uh, equity and inclusion. And Guanabacoa is a very interesting town. I basically had all that back then in those days. There were peoples of all kinds of uh, ethnic backgrounds. I had friends that were <clears throat> Blacks. I had friends who were mulatos. I had friends who were Chinese. And, uh, it was a very interesting community. We all got along very well. We all went to school. And the city was a very prosperous city. As, uh, when you say today, well, Guanabacoa is to Havana, what would you say Miami, Hialeah, Miami? Uh, because it basically was an industrial city. And uh, also, uh, you know, it was a very um, a city that was developing. So it was right. before, there were a lot of factories there. Were, were there any synagogues or temples that you and your family were members of in Cuba? Yes, uh, Havana had uh, several synagogues. Uh, as a matter of fact, they're still active today. Uh, I went to one that was still is in downtown Havana in the old city. And But I basically, it's, uh, because I had friends, no, I used to try to go to all three of them. Uh, one is uh, for, was developed or uh, founded by the Sephardics. Uh, mm -hmm. The story of the Cuban Jews is that the first group arrived with Columbus because they were running away from the Inquisition. Right. And really not much is known about that period until 1910 when those of Sephardi background, those who were originally from Spain, who then went to Turkey primarily and Syria, uh, started going to Cuba. Followed in the 1920s uh, by those what I call Ashkenazi Jews who come from Eastern Europe. So is um, Russia and um, Lithuania and Romania and all these surrounding areas. Mm -hmm. So the community uh, developed to a point of that during World War II, uh, it is said there were about 25,000 Jews. Some of them were of Belgian background who had come during the Holocaust uh, to avoid the Holocaust. And they settled, they settled to develop the diamond industry. However, many of those left after the war and the, the community remained as of the figure we had in 1959. Uh, there were about 15,000 Jews throughout the island, 12,000 12, in Havana and the rest uh, through the island. Did, did you ever feel any anti-Semitism while you lived in Cuba, you or your parents? Not really. As a matter of fact, it's interesting to, for the audience to know that to the average Cuban, there were, there were only three types of immigrants. There were the, the Gallegos, and um, didn't matter what part of Spain they came from, uh, mm -hmm. which is from the, uh, the province of Galicia. You had the um, uh, Polacos. It didn't matter what part of Europe or the Middle East you came from. And you had the Chinos. It didn't matter what part of uh, Asia you came from. Right. So that was the general knowledge of the population. And uh, Cuba's always been a very hospitable country, a hospitable country to immigrants. You, you were telling me um, during our first conversation that um, you were part of the U Jewish youth group in Centro Israelita. Yes, I went to, I went to a Jew, uh, first, the first uh, three years, I went to an uh, elementary school, which was right down the block from my house. I only had to walk about the block and a half. And wow. 
And then uh, when I was in third grade, my parents decided that I should also get a Jewish education. So there was a, um, a Jewish school. Uh, at the time, it, it was housed in the neighborhood of Santo Suarez, uh, next to La Vibora. And uh, <laughs> from walking a block and a half, now I'm finding myself riding on a bus five hours a day, four trips of one and a quarter hours to go to the school to get a Jewish education. So I was spending as many wow. buses I was spending in the classroom. Wow. And on Saturdays, uh, I would get together with some of my uh, friends, uh, you know, for some of the Jewish youth group. But I also had time for my uh, Cuban friends, uh, neighbors. And, uh, and this is how I went through until I came over uh, as part of uh, Operation Pedro Pan. Or Peter Pan. Yeah. That was my next question. Your pa your parents had to make that difficult decision of sending you through Operation Pedro Pan. So looking back now, how did that affect you? And are you grateful that they made this decision? Well, I guess I I must I am very grateful they made that decision. Uh, the reason being is that it's interesting how life uh, takes interesting turns. Uh, I was. Within the Pedro Pan operation of 14,000 plus kids, there were 396 Jewish kids. Most of these kids uh, either went with family members or they, was, they were sent to foster homes. While many of the Cuban Catholic kids uh, or Protestant kids remain in Miami at first in different um, camps and houses in the area, I was sent to Los Angeles to foster homes. Mm -hmm. be with individuals who I did not know. It's interesting that after nine, after being there nine months, my grandmother in Cuba remembered that she had a nephew who had passed away who whose uh, widow um, lived in New York and they had several children, one of whom lived in LA. So she sent a letter to her. She forwarded to the to the son. The son one night I'm about to go to sleep because uh, we, we went to sleep about 8.30, 9 o'clock at night because we had to get up early to go to school. And uh, the house mother at the time tells me, oh, by the way, there's a couple downstairs who just arrived who says they're cousins of yours and they bring a letter from your grandma of a long relationship <clears throat> that has lasted to this day. Uh, my cousin, um, he, his goal was to make it to 100 years of age. <laughs> he did. In 2017, wow. he passed away. His folk, his uh, wife, widow, happens to just also become 100 last September. And I was supposed to go for a celebration, but unfortunately, because of COVID-19, no celebration could be held. So we've been this relationship throughout the years. Also, something interesting I want to tell you about how life is. While I'm in the high school, <clears throat> in the public high school there, I meet two brothers. And we became very friendly. They came from the town of Cienfuegos and they were taken out by their uncle who already lived in LA for many years through Spain. Mm -hmm. And this uncle used to come in and um, every day bring him and then take him back. And uh, so the, the two brothers, you know, we became very friendly. And uh, as you are aware, Los Angeles, it doesn't rain a lot. But when it right. rains, it rains for several days. So I had to walk about six blocks from the school to the bus stop. Mm -hmm. 
So I had the audacity to ask the uncle, who was very friendly to all of us, if he didn't mind taking me to the bus stop. And uh, it was a set Catholic from Cienfuegos. And he, um, you know, he did that several times. And one, one, one of those trips, he says to me, Marcos, I see you're, you're alone here and you need un, un poco de, de ambiente criollo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that you're under the supervision of a Jewish institutions. And the only thing I can do is to go to see them and ask him if they will allow me to take you with us on weekends. And he got permission. So I could be with, his, with him and his wife and his, his nephews. And it's interesting, he would drive uh, about 30 miles each way. So you're talking about four trips totaling 120 miles. Wow. To pick me up and take, take him to his house, have lunch with him. Along the way, he found out he had met some Cuban friends one of those couples happened to have been Jewish, and the wife happened to have been a very good friend of my aunt. Says, oh, look before. at that. In one of those trips, he says to me, Marcus, <clears throat> uh, in this country, if you want to progress, you have to uh, study, and you have to have degrees. Now, remember, I'm, I'm about 14 to 15 years old. Right. If you don't study in this country, you don't get anywhere. So, okay, I, I took that, and we talked about becoming a dentist. Now, that went well until I took the first chemistry course and worrying about Cuba, my parents, the missile crisis developing and all that, I had no, I had no mind to, to study chemistry. So uh, another trip, he says to me, Marcus, uh, you need to learn Hebrew. I said, Hebrew? What do I need Hebrew for? I got plenty of, I got plenty of issues with learning English. <laughs> he said to me, you got to understand you're Jewish. And the only, the only way you're going to learn the history, the culture. Now, I said, come on. I, I, got, I got plenty of issues here. And uh, his advice went in one ear, went out the other. <laughs> what he was telling me, without realizing either one of us, that, was, that 17 years later, I would be heading and opening an Israeli bank in Miami. Look at that. Okay. And that advice became very important on that day because now the top command of the bank were all Israeli, even though they spoke very good English. When they were among themselves, they would go back to speak Hebrew. So then immediately I enrolled in the, to take Hebrew classes. And uh, then I had a, one of the employees of the bank was a Hebrew teacher. And uh, within six months after that, I started ready to speak, to speak Hebrew. And you still speak it today? That's correct. How, how soon after this did you reunite with your parents? You know, my parents didn't want to leave Cuba because for them it would have been the, their second exodus in their lifetime. Right. And it was very hard. They went to the 50s. They, I didn't even realize my father was so, so ill until they arrived. They didn't tell me. Um, they wanted to leave because they knew they were going to have to start again at that age, at that age with no knowledge of no language, no money. Uh, in that case, no health. And uh, they already, you know, they already had done it when they were in the early 20s. So I kind of put pressure because my, my brother had previously gone to Israel. He had come over. And uh, so I said, you know, a decision has to be made. And what's, you know, what's, and I guess the unity of the family is important. So then mm -hmm. they decided to go ahead and file for the exit permit, which was granted within 38 days. 
And it was, they were very lucky that it came with the next to the last flight before the missile crisis when all uh, flights stopped. And if I wouldn't come on those flights, uh, they wouldn't be able to get out of Cuba until 1965. So this was in 19, this was in, on October 19, 1962. So we reunited here in Miami. I had, uh, my uncle had claimed me uh, when they arrived in April. And when I finished school in June, uh, I came over, they, they came in October. My brother had come previous the prior month. Uh, and then we all moved to Atlanta. And that's where I finished high school. And that's where I did my undergraduate and graduate education. You were a member of the Cuban Hebrew congregation in Miami Beach. Yes. And you also served as its president twice. Three times. Can you talk three times. <laughs> Can you tell us about that experience and, and what, what were your goals at that time as president? Of that congregation? Well, uh, you know, since we all grew up together and we knew each other, we were the youngest at the time of the group. Uh, there was a congregation set up in 1961 uh, to maintain the Jews together. Uh, it was uh, a decision made because uh, by the Cuban leadership at the time, the Cuban Jewish leadership, because uh, many of the synagogues, with the exception of one, did not open our doors to us. To us. Mm -hmm. So it was felt that uh, originally we would just be a social. It was uh, organized as the Cuban Hebrew social circle just to maintain such Cuban traditions. But that right. religious point of view, we would go to um, other synagogues wherever we were uh, living closest to. Because remember, in the Jewish religion, uh, if you are Orthodox and you are following Sabbath, really you cannot drive. So you have to walk and you have to be within walking distance of the uh, of your synagogue. Uh, right. So uh, once this was um, realized that there was just not that ex that acceptance in the different areas for whatever reasons they had at the time, uh, the congregation was set up. And then it so happens that later on, uh, one of the four leaders who established the temple who happened to be, that became many years later, my father-in-law, mm -hmm. went to Tampa and he brought in uh, a rabbi who was a Holocaust survivor who had moved to Cuba and he was living in Tampa with his family. So they were brought to Miami and they started religious services. So now the congregation not only was a social place, but it was also a religious place, which is there to this day at Miami Beach. Mm -hmm. There were several uh, phases that they started in a very small space. Um, then um, one of our founders uh, was associated with... Uh, Washington Federal Savings and Loan Association, which no longer exists, and he provided us free of charge their um, one of their large rooms for us to meet. Then we little bit money came in. Uh, they rented a small store space on Washington Avenue. Then by 1975, they were able to purchase a house and convert it into a temple and social hall. And then in 1985, on January 27th, which is the um, to celebrate the liberation of Auschwitz, uh, we um, we um, had a ceremony of the uh, of the new building, which is on uh, Lenox Lenox and Seventeenth um, Street here, in Miami Beach, which is a prime location, right next to mm -hmm. Lincoln Road. So the com the community, unfortunately, most of these original members have passed away, because this, the community will be celebrating 60th years here. 
And uh, but now we've had probably about three generations that have been born here, which grew up in throughout the entire, you know, the, this county and and adjoining counties. Mm-hmm. So, uh, most of the younger generation belong to the congregation where they went to school. And uh, but we still socially, we still know each other. Uh, one of the unfortunate things that I had to do as uh, president, there were two, two, two good things that I remember. One, uh, I was able to be the president that uh, paid off the mortgage on the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was one of the last acts that I did. And I have started um, in January, starting pressing for it uh, to um, be able to, to do the fundraising to do it because I felt that a house of God should not have the mortgage, even though I was a banker myself. Right. And, uh, and two, unfortunately, I had to attend about 23 funerals because by that time, the older members were passing away, a trend which has continued. Yeah. And, that's that's, that's the, the, sad, the sad part of so the thing. I like to tell my friends, I says, now we are the Los Nuevos Viejos. <laughs> in my case, I have two generations. My son was born here in 1974, and my grandchildren were also born here in Miami. So, you know, I've developed, uh, I was in the, in the banking industry uh, for all these years. Simultaneously, while I was uh, practicing the banking, um, practicing banking during the day, I was teaching at night, uh, which I do to this day. And I've been um, affiliated with FIU already for several decades. And uh, that's a pride that I have uh, today in um, developing the next generation of uh, financial services leaders. Would you ever consider going back to Cuba if it were free or just visit? Uh, this is a hard question to do, to say by yourself, because you have families you have to discuss the matter with. Uh, even though my wife was also born in Cuba, I would like to go back to visit. As a matter of fact, I am in touch with many members of the community. Uh, I, I I know how much they are suffering over there. And I hope that, you know, somehow or another, uh, the relations uh, with the two course and necessary changes uh, open up again. And who knows? I mean, there are people here that have, um, you know, second homes, whether in Key West or in the mountains of, of the Carolinas. Maybe I'll consider having a second home in Cuba. I don't know yet. A, a few years ago, Marco, you presented a documentary about the history of the Cuban Jewish community yes. at the Jewish Museum of Florida in Miami Beach. Yes. Can you tell us about this project and about the history of the overall Cuban Jewish community of Florida? Well, uh, the project starts because it so happens that one of my hobbies has been since the mid-60s. Uh, to take pictures, and then I went into film, uh, which started back about 1966 when um, the first um, Super 8 cameras came out, which were silent. And uh, I just started taking it, and I kept, you know, developing all this film throughout the years. And then I realized that one day, I guess when I was president, that's the idea started, that uh, we should have a history in, in video. Uh, there, there are books around there, and there, there, there are quite a few books on the Cuban Jewish community. And sometimes I say, you know, how come there are so many interested, interested authors 
for such a small community, which even today is only about 1,500 individuals. Mm -hmm. I said, but there's nothing really uh, from the, the U.S. side, uh, from the Florida side, in film. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, let me put together the, uh, the film that I've got. And so happens that I go to a 50th wedding anniversary of the only rabbi who uh, really opened to the Jewish community, or the Cuban Jewish community. And he had been in Cuba visiting in the, in this, in the 50s. And uh, it so happens, found out that it was done, this beautiful video was done by the, his daughter. And uh, I approached her because I think it was also uh, it was also the time to honor him because what he did. So I said, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's do a video. And we sat together, I gave her materials, I gave her the film, and uh, she put up, she put this video together. By the way, the voice in that narration is hers physically, but they're in spirit. If, if the listeners want to, um, you know, access this documentary, where do they go? They can go to the internet, to the web. Uh, they, can, they can look under the history of the Cuban Jewish community, 1890s, with the S at the end. Dash 2009, and it should come right up. It's about a 27-minute video, and it shows about seven minutes of our life in Cuba, and then the rest, the rest from our development here in, in in the area. As a matter of fact, the architect for the building was a very well-known Cuban Catholic uh, architect by the name of Aquiles Capablanca, and it mm -hmm. so happens that uh, his son, who's been a banker. Um, we're very good friends. Hmm. That building stands still there in Cuba and is actively used. Now, of course, because of the pandemic, everything in Cuba is closed, just like it's, uh, it was here. Uh, but right. uh, there are still activities. Interesting that, uh, you know, the creative minds of the Cubans, that even though they were unable to gather and they don't have the resources that we have with Zoom and all the others, they were able to find a way to connect through WhatsApp. And, That's great. And the island, all the activities for the Jewish New Year and just now for for Passover and every major activity, you see the entire, all the different individuals um, connected. And they, you know, they each one does the prayer and, uh, uh, and uh, the, you know, the, the right things and the entire island sees it simultaneously through WhatsApp. I was mm. very surprised. When I heard about it, I'm, now now I'm I linked to it. No, I'm I'm surprised myself, but um, I'm glad that at least people are able to to find ways and means to getting together, even if it's through WhatsApp. Right, you know, they, they are, as I said, there are three communities in Havana, uh, mm -hmm. one in Santa Clara, there's one in Cienfuegos, I think there's one in Caivarian, and there's also in uh, in Oriente. I think there's one in Granma, there's one in Santiago, Cuba. So those are smaller communities. But uh, the largest group is in Havana. That's always been. And all these communities, they, they all keep in touch with one another, correct? Yes, especially now through WhatsApp, yes. As mm -hmm. a matter of fact, they've had, uh, since uh, Cuba opened up in 1992, uh, the Joint Distribution Committee, which is a global organization that helps Jews, uh, they were able to find a rabbi at the time to... Uh, have to disconnect from my friends that remain in Cuba, especially all uh, all the 50 classmates of mine at the Jewish school. Uh, 
we all left at one time or another. We, I know where all of them are. Unfortunately, we've lost uh, six, five or six of them. Uh, but um, it was hard for me to disconnect from the ones that remain in Cuba because for a while, no, uh, they, the people in Cuba felt kind of they were compromised if they had any uh, access to anybody that is always abroad. It was interesting not too long ago that I was giving a presentation in the Dominican Republic and I met an individual from, that worked for one of the government uh, agencies there who, um, you know, I didn't know when I was when I heard there were going to be quite a few Cubans arriving from the island to this uh, Congress or, or to the seminar. Uh, how would they react when they found out that, uh, you know, I had left Cuba? It was uh, gusano, as we were called. Right. It so happens that the, small, the world is so small that there were 25 in that particular uh, event. And uh, as I looked around, I said, let me see who is the oldest of the group. I didn't know them. And who would be, and if there's any connections here somehow. It so happens that as I walk back to my chair, I see, uh, I said, I said, I think this individual looked to be the oldest and probably the leader. So I approached him. I said, you know, what time did you leave uh, Cuba, uh, Havana? Uh, unfortunately, like, while there used to be direct flights between Havana and, and Santo Domingo, they had to go through Panama hmm. to get back there. So instead of arriving in the morning, they had to arrive in the afternoon after several hours of layover. And as I told him, I said, you know, uh, I'm from Guanabacoa. They said, oh, I'm very familiar with Guanabacoa. And then later on, I asked him, tell me, where did you go to school? Your, where did you go to high school? He says to Instituto La Habana, the Havana High School. I said, what year? It so happens that he was two years behind me. And I said, wait a minute. So then I had heard that he was a mathematician and physicist. I said, by the way, so you were, you were in the Instituto of Havana this year? He says, yes. I said, so that means I named all the professors that I had for mathematics, for, for trigonom trigonometry, and everything else, the, the entire claustrum. That clicked to the fact that we became very close to the entire group while I was there. So I say, you know, that I am a firm believer that education unites people, mm -hmm. regardless of your or political or religious affiliation. So we we had a very good, uh, very good, uh, you know, experiences, and I look forward to be able to visit Cuba, you know, and uh, get to to reconnect because uh, I I really would love to 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 see again these friends of mine. Well, we live in a very small world, and somehow we're all interconnected somehow. Right. You know, it's been said that if your last name ends in easy, whether it's Alvarez or Gutierrez or Lopez. And if you go back far back enough, you may have some Jewish ancestry here. Because oh, and I the, have all the, all those surnames. Because the the easy is the equivalent of Hebrew of Ben, which is right. or uh, in in those old days you did not have a, 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 a family name. You had your first name, son of, then your father's name. So the the Hebrew word is Ben. So the equivalent of that in Spanish is uh, easy. So, is there anything that you that you want to um, say to to those in genealogy um, 
last words about the the Hebrew community? That uh, people should really find out about their roots. And unfortunately, is that there's a lot of, uh, uh, for known reasons, uh, things that are totally untrue. Um, and uh, I think if you did, you know, far back enough, you may be spitting your own family. I would say you're doing a great job. Uh, continue digging, continue finding, because uh, we are here for a reason. And uh, fortunately, we have more tools today, thanks to technology, to find our, our roots. So, Thank you so much, Marco, for your, for your time and for sharing all these experiences with us. We really appreciate it because now we understand more when we hear it from someone who actually was born in Cuba and lived in Cuba. We, we really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for, your, for, your, for approaching me, Eileen, and we shall continue success with this, with this project. We hope you enjoyed another episode of the Cuban Family Roots Podcast. Our podcast can now be heard on various platforms such as Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, to name a few. We're always working to improve and bring topics of importance to you. Please drop us an email if you have any suggestions. My email is cubanfamilyrootspodcast at gmail.com. My gratitude to my guest, Professor Marcos Kerbel. Acknowledgement and gratitude to Sylvia Gorinsky, a professor at FIU, for her information and what she shared, which helped me to produce this podcast. Please share this podcast with family and friends. This episode of The Jewish in Cuba was edited and produced by Aileen Vega with excerpts from an article by Seymour B. Lehman from his article, Cuban Jewish Community in South Florida. Sound by B. Torres, graphics and marketing, Anthony Janis. Coming up in October, common Cuban surnames.